We've been teaching on hope from the scriptures for the last few Sundays, and our journey has brought us this summer to the book of Job. Last Sunday, we spoke on how to abound in hope. To abound in hope. We want to, who wants to abound in hope? If we're going to help a hopeless world, we must abound in hope. Recently, the title article of Time magazine, pictured by someone in the military on the cover with the words, one a day. The average suicide rate in the military is one military personnel a day is ending their life. And it's a whole myriad of reasons. They can't tie it all together because everybody's story is different. But one common thing is there. Hopelessness. In that article, to my dismay, I also discovered that every 80 minutes, a veteran, that is a former member of the military, ends it all. And that's just the military. Suicide is ravaging this generation because of hopelessness. And so as believers, we must give hope. But to give hope, we must have it ourselves, right? You can't, I can't give you a watch unless I got one, right? I must abound in hope, and I believe it's biblical to abound in hope. And first of all, we must pursue knowing God as a God of hope. He is our hope. He is the hope of salvation. He is the hope of glory. He's the one worthy of our hope. And when we don't know what to do, we can just stand and keep on hoping. The story's not over. Number two, we must learn and believe his peace-bringing truth. By that I mean read all the scriptures. Don't just hold to the little promises in the promise box on your breakfast table of verses taken out of context. Read the whole thing. An example, Paul wrote in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Athletes love to quote that. But it's much bigger than just winning an athletic contest. In the context, Paul's saying, I can win and I can lose. I can be rich and I can be poor. I can abound and I can be abased. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What that verse means is we can go through anything through the Lord who enables us. Not just the good stuff. We can go through the tough stuff. Learn to believe His peace being in truth. All of it is rich. It's wonderful. Number three, discover and resist all hope-robbing hopes. If you put your hope in the wrong things, it's going to let you down. There's a certain element in the Lakota people, native peoples up in the Dakotas, that have their hope in the birthing of a white buffalo calf and that this will bring the return of a prophetess who will come and bring peace to them and to the world. Recently, there was a white buffalo calf born. And to the dismay of the world, somebody killed that thing. Check it out. Don't put your hope in something that can be killed. A flying eagle. I mean, hello, somebody can shoot that bird right out of the sky. Put your hope in God. Amen. He'll hold you strong. I don't mean to make fun of other religions, but the point is, if you put your hope in something faulty... You're going to wind up with hopelessness. And number four, allow the Holy Spirit to fill you with hope. 
Paul wrote in Romans 15, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the Holy Spirit. Abound in hope. Father, we want to abound in hope. We ask you, Lord, to enable us today to be strengthened as hope givers. Amen. You found the book of Job yet? Chapter 1. Let's read the first three verses. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless. Can we say blameless? And upright. Can we say upright? One who feared God. Can we say feared God? And shunned evil. Can we say shunned evil? And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Can we say the greatest? Now, verse 6 is part of the story Job doesn't know. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. How is this possible? Why did this happen? I have no idea, but it's in the book. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. See, he's not omnipresent, so he has to move around. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none, none like him on the earth, a blameless, can we say blameless, an upright man, can we say upright man? One who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so God allowed Satan to take the man's children and all the man's possessions. Next time there was an encounter between God and Satan, for chapter 2, verse 2. From where do you come? The Lord said, if you considered my servant Job, verse 3 of chapter 2, and there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you've incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your faith. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd or a piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And he said to her, But you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity in all this? Job did not sin with his lips. Verse 11, now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Now surely the man had more than three friends. 
greatest man of the East. But three of them showed up. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite. I guess he wasn't a very tall fellow. And Zophar the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted up their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head towards heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And so begins the story of Job, a wealthy, righteous man who soon lost it all, including his ten children and his health, as well as the respect of his wife. I mean, how much worse can it get? And yet it does get worse. To make matters worse, three well-meaning friends come to see this suffering man. When they first saw Job, they did not recognize him. They tore their robes and wept. After being speechless while staring at him silently for seven days, can you imagine that? These friends finally do begin to speak by trying to make sense of all Job's problems with wise-sounding accusations of blame. You know, I'm all for memorizing the Scripture and quoting the Scripture, but when it comes to the book of Job, you be careful. You be careful. God inspired the book to be written, but everything written in there wasn't an inspired statement from God. Don't misunderstand that statement. God inspired it to be written, but just because Job such and such says such and such doesn't mean God said it. Somebody quoted as somebody who was believing for their healing. The Bible says, skin for skin, what will a man give for his skin? Why should you ask God to heal you? Hello? The Bible does say that, but who said it? Satan. What are we doing quoting what he said? After being speechless while staring at him for seven days, these friends finally do begin to speak by trying to make sense of all of these man's problems with wise-sounding accusations of blame in an effort to pin some kind of guilt on the poor guy, resulting in the increasing of Job's pain, the pain of betrayal, slander, and cruel religion. Tell your neighbor, beware of cruel religion. Job is the first to speak, which he later regrets. I'm sure he wished he'd hushed. When he begins to try to express his sorrow and hopelessness by lamenting the day he was born. Chapter 3, verse 3, he said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, A male child is conceived. Verse 11, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Job wraps up this particular lament by saying these words of despair. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. Modern preachers, of whom I was once one, indirectly agree with Job's cruel friends by saying that he's the one that opened the door to his troubles because of his fear. As stated here, the thing I greatly feared was come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. So he opened the door to the devil. But the Bible does not say that anywhere in this book. And anywhere else that this story is referred to in the scriptures, nowhere does it say Job's the one at fault for his suffering. 
The Bible doesn't say it. You're adding to the word to do that. Trying to make sense of it. Joining in with his accusers. Lord, help us. In fact, according to what we read in chapter 1, God said this man was blameless. So to try to put blame on the man is to say God was mistaken. I better stop lest I start pointing the blame. The God of the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. While worry and fear are not good for any of us, to take and apply a suffering person's honest and agonizing feelings, especially the words that are spoken while in the depths of unimaginable despair, as a reason for all their problems, is both shallow and downright cruel. Beware of cruel religion. Now comes Eliphaz, a Terminite. Timonite. Keep wanting to call him a termite. But. With his first hurtful diatribe against Job. Now don't worry, we're not going to go through the whole book. We're just going to cover a third of it. <laughs> 42 chapters. We're going to cruise at 13,000 feet and fly fast. Chapter 4, verse 7. He accuses Job. Remember, whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Verse 9. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. So Job, you've obviously done something wrong. Man. Ouch. He goes on to talk about a visitation of an evil spirit and then quotes the thing. Chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, and listen to this subtle accusation, Can a man be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth, they are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. That is totally demonic. That's some devil resentful of the fact he was kicked out of heaven. And saying if he's mean to the angels, he's going to be mean to people too. The Bible says do not believe every spirit. These demonic words no doubt created more hopelessness in this suffering man. Then he gets all spiritual. Chapter 1. Eliphaz says, call out now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man and envy slays a simple one. The fact his prayers weren't being answered was used as mockery against him. After making gross accusations and even quoting words from an evil spirit, Eliphaz the Timonite now gets all spiritual and starts preaching about repentance. While the following words are true, 
They are not being applied in love. We must always speak the truth, saints, but we must speak it in love. Speak the truth in love, the Bible says. My daddy used to say you can take an ear of corn and grind it up and feed a chicken and make him fat. He's from Arkansas. That's how he talks. Or you can take that same ear of corn and whack that chicken upside the head and kill him. Same corn, different application. So Eliphaz the Temanite says, but as for me, I would seek God and to God, I would commit my cause who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. God is wonderful. I would pray to him if I was you. Duh. What do you think Job's doing? Not once do these comforters ever pray for Job. Not to pick on these three guys, but there's only three of all of his friends that showed up. This cruel comforter, using truth like a club, continues to imply that Job is the cause of his suffering, which must be a chastening that he deserves. Job sinks deeper into pits of despair in chapter 6, verse 2. He says, oh, that my grief were fully weighed and my calamity laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. He's expressing. I can't do justice to this book. It's written in Hebrew. It's an amazing book of poetry. But in English, we can see this guy was down, wasn't he? Verse 8 of chapter 6, he says, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, and that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Verse 11, what strength do I have that I should hope? He was hopeless. Understandably, Job then lashes out at his friends. Chapter 6, verse 14. To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. In other words, even if I'm wrong, where's the kindness? Verse 15, my brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away. Their kindness is dried up just like a brook gone dry. His hopeless lamenting continues in the next chapter, 7, verse 5. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. Now, I know these things are not true. He will see good. If you go to the end of the book, he was restored double everything that he had, and his children were all replaced, and these kids were better than the first ones. But when you're in a trial, it feels like it's the rest of your life. You don't know. May God help us as a church to be a safe place where a person can lament. Now, there's a time to speak the truth and a time to not whine, you know, when you just magnify your problems and all you do is complain. But there's a place for open honesty rather than stuffing down your pain and not, a, not approaching anyone with it out of fear of being rebuked. That's not a healthy church. 
Now Bildad, the Shuhite, wants to jump in and give Job his two cents. Chapter 8, verse 3. He says, does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. Otherwise, your kids have gone to hell. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. It goes on, verse 11. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Now he's going to use nature to illustrate this hurtful speech. Can reeds flourish without water? While it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish. Now Job's a hypocrite, whose confidence shall be cut off, and whose trust is a spider's web. Our English translations do not do this kind of cruelty justice. But we can see Job is taking a beating from his friends. And then Bildad the Shuhite goes on and says, Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold evildoers. The Shuhite concludes by trying to encourage Job next. But this is not an apology for what he had just said, thus making these words condescending. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. Job responds by agreeing with how great God is while continuing to wrestle with his doubt and his hopelessness. But in the middle, he begins to wail some more about his desire to die. Chapter 10, verse 1. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Verse 18. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. Why couldn't I have been a miscarriage is what he's saying. Now the third friend, Zophar the Namathite, jumps in the fray with his cutting wisdom. Chapter 11, verse 2. Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? When you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, my doctrine is pure, I am clean in your eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore, listen to this, that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. You think it's bad, Job. You deserve more than this. More pain, more loss. How ungodly can you get and still breathe? Satan has disappeared from the story, but I imagine he's in the background pulling strings. You know, he's not allowed to take the guy's life, but he's trying to lead him to take his own life. That's why I believe every time there's a suicide, it is so unnatural to the way God made us. There is something demonic going on behind the scenes. Chapter 11, verse 13, he starts 
being all righteous. If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand, you put it far from you and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Now there he is covered with spots. I mean, what kind of thing to say to a guy? Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning and you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. You would also lay down and no one could make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail and they shall not escape. And their hope, loss of life. In other words, Job, because you're despairing of your life, you're wicked. Remembering that we have access to the whole story, and these people did not, it is important if we're going to resist judging these morons. Job responds sarcastically. I mean, the guy's still got spunk. He steps up in chapter 12, verse 2. No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him, the just and the blameless who is ridiculed. Now they're provoking him to wrath and he becomes prideful and says some things that the Lord later in the story rebukes. But come on, let's cut him some slack. What can a guy take? In chapter 14, he continues with this hopeless refrain on the futility of his life and how God seems to be against him. He says, there's hope for a tree if it's cut down that it will sprout again. Verse 9, at the sin of water, it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But a man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? Would anyone agree that Job was wrestling with hopelessness? Would you agree? The man is struggling. And we're going to put a bookmark in the book right there and just speak for a few minutes here in closing how not to help the hopeless. Tell your neighbor, he's telling us how not to do, how not to help the hopeless. I don't want anybody leaving saying, pastor told us to do this. No, I'm telling you what not to do. And I must be honest, I have done every single one of these things at some point during my life. Maybe to some of y'all. Maybe. Maybe not. So if you experience these at my hand, don't think I necessarily did it intentionally. Let's just keep it all on the table here. How not to help the hopeless. Can we say that? If you don't want to help the hopeless, then forget to pray for them. Tell them you're going to pray for them, but don't do it. I'll pray for you. We'll remember you in our prayers. Spiritual platitudes. These friends of Job did come to see him, but they didn't pray for him. They didn't pray with him. At the end of the story, he winds up praying for them. Because they had a whooping coming from the Almighty. They did. And Job prayed for them. And got healed in the process. If you don't want to help the hopeless, then avoid them like the plague. Oh, here comes so-and-so. Oh, her again. Wait, Silent. Ah, let me see. What was I watching? 
If you don't want to help the hopeless, then be unwilling to sacrifice your time. My time is valuable. I have things to do. Really? Every single second of your day? 86,400 seconds that we're given every day into our account is under our authority as to how we spend it. There's nothing to spare to help a person that's down. If you do happen to run across their path, be sure while they're talking to look for your turn to say something. Let your eyes glaze over and yawn and look at your watch. Make sure it's working. And when they hush, then you get to give your great words of wisdom because we can't help people unless we feel like we have all the answers. And be sure to share some gleaning nugget of wisdom that you saw on a bumper sticker somewhere. Well, brother, God's your co-pilot. Christians aren't perfect, but we're forgiven. Helpless platitudes. If you've got that bumper sticker on your car, I'm not thinking of you at all. I don't even know you have that bumper. I don't know anybody in here has any bumper stickers. All right. Be sure to not forget to tell them how much things could be worse. Your dog died. Well, is your dad alive? Yeah. Well, thank God for that. (laughs) And be sure, don't hesitate, race to this. Be sure to focus on the things they could have prevented. You know, there's a time for everything. There is a time to share wisdom and help people prevent their problems. Because lack of wisdom brings on problems. Lack of wisdom brings on an abundance of prayer requests. It does. But not in every case. There's things going on in life. We don't know what's going on in the background. And if they had done everything you say they could do to prevent the problem, doesn't mean they wouldn't have some kind of problem in their life. It's the truth. Wait for the right time to focus on what could be prevented. That doesn't mean everything in life could be prevented. I mean, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Don't be like that ridiculous comedian mocking the people in famine by saying, Hello, you live in the desert! Don't do that. If you're not going to help the hopeless, be sure and keep your hands clean. Don't you dare get them dirty. And keep your brow free of sweat. Don't get all sweaty helping folks. No, 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 no. Don't do that. I mean, my goodness, you just got your nails done. If you don't want to help the hopeless, be sure to make promises you probably will never keep. If you want to bring a hopeless person further down, make some promises and then don't keep them. Man, it just increases those emotions that say you're not loved. You're just like handing the devil stuff to beat him with. You can't keep any promises. Don't make any. Just don't. It's okay to say, I don't know. And finally, recommend someone else to help them out of their trouble. I have an assignment for us. If we are truly going to help people who are hopeless, we've got to put our life on the line. Hope starts here.
someone's testimony one day could be, I was hopeless until she came to see me. Until he paid me a visit. Until they lent me a hand. Until you made that phone call. I was about to end it all. Two questions. Do we think people need to have hope? Are we willing to be a source of that hope ourselves? Yeah. God's truth with clothes on. Flesh. Be the answer to someone's prayer. Unlike Job's comforters, are we willing to say, hope starts here? I don't want anybody to be condemned. Because I know there's problems in life that can leave us speechless. The past is a past from this day forward. Are we willing to say hope starts here? Unlike Job's comforters, are you willing to say hope starts here? I'm preaching to myself, unlike Job's comforters, am I willing to say hope starts here? Let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would enable us to see where we've been practicing Avoiding opportunities to bring hope. And now, Lord, in the conclusion of this service, as George Huff sings us a song, I pray, Lord, you'd minister to our hearts as hope givers, as well as minister to our hearts for those of us that need hope in our life, Lord. In Jesus.
You are listening to Worship and the Word with Generations Church of Granbury.